My, my, my. Welcome to another episode of The Optimistic Advocate. This is episode number five. And I'm your host, Scott Bryant Comstock. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a fun interview today with Julie Radlauer, who is one of the partners of the Ronick Radlauer Group. And uh, the Ronick Radlauer Group is a organizational development firm based in Florida. Uh, their mission is to help individuals, organizations, and communities create a vision for change for themselves. What's wrong with that? That, that sounds pretty darn good. They consider themselves change makers, and they are change makers. They're very well known in the mental health field, particularly in the children's mental health field, and they do work all over the country, but primarily in Florida. They work with individuals doing coaching, training, accreditation. They have a leadership academy. They just got all kinds of things going on. But I like to think of Julie Radlauer as a change maker, and that's what this show is all about. It's all about identifying advocates who figure out how to get it done, figure out how to work through the hard stuff. And this show is about learning how they do that. So I'm really pleased to have Julie here today. And I started off the interview by asking her, you know, how she defined the term change maker, how she thought of herself as an advocate and how she got involved uh, in this work. Here's what she had to say. Julie, how'd you decide? When did you become an advocate? What was happening with Julie that you decided, you know, I think I want to go this path as opposed to whatever else, whatever other path. It could have been a path of just being a therapist or or being a social marketer, which you are, but change maker. Well, I think where I got the guts to do that is when I finished my master's degree, I took a year and I traveled around the world by myself. And I saw so many different things. Society was just brimming. And so I would, you know, one day be in India in the, in the poorest country. And then the next day I was in Singapore. I had a backpack on my back and I went from country to country, volunteering, working if I could find work and just experiencing what it was like to live in other cultures. And so I think that that created this, this person in me that looks at a very large scope because I have all of that experience under my belt about how people struggle no matter where they live, how we're all human, that humanity is equal, you know, that you can be in the ghettos of India and, and happy, right? And you can be in the, the, the wealthiest hotel in Singapore and be miserable. And so for me, it was really about figuring out what each person wants or needs in order to be happy and help them get there. You come back. Come back. <laughs> yes. Hey, say, hey, parents, put me up for a little while. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Where did it go from there? You come back from this amazing experience. So what uh, next? So I got a job. <laughs> I started working at Community Mental Health Center. I've always loved working with children. So that was my first job. I was working in the children's behavioral health field. And I quickly learned the same, you know, used the same information that I had used along my, my venture to work in the world. And I worked with children who have behavioral health conditions, uh, learned a lot about that process, learned that there were some flaws in the American platform, if you will. Like what? Well, just even back then, and that was 20 years ago, aging myself, but 20 years ago, you could see the cracks in the, in the system. You could see the lack of collaboration you can see how one one system doesn't speak to the other. And it was really frustrating because the families that I was working with were being pulled in a million different directions. 
And so I, that was a really frustrating time in my life. It was really exciting. You know, your first job in, on the street is always a really exciting time in your life. But it was really frustrating for me because of my scope. And this, I'm this big picture thinker. And so it was frustrating to me that I couldn't help a family maneuver their way through the multiple systems that they were involved in because our systems were broken. And there were so many barriers to our systems. And so that was the way I thought. And so quickly, I was promoted from that job. I began to work for the state and I was doing a lot of monitoring across the state. And then I quickly got promoted to be the director of a community health center. And from there, I was able to really use my platform to make changes in a broad scope. Yeah. And so I did that for about seven years and that was a fantastic job. At one point I had almost 300 people that I supervised. You know, and so I was able to bring in lots of different programs and philosophies. And then we applied for a, a system of care grant. Oh, Lord have mercy. Yeah, that's where it started. <laughs> so then I just jumped into that world with, you know, with two feet and really embraced it because it is such a large scope project when you're looking at the entire system. Okay, let me just do a quick interjection here. For those of you who don't know the term system of care or system of care grants, it is a, a federal grant initiative that uh, was put into legislation back in 1992. And the idea is that the federal government would give uh, money to states and communities uh, to help stimulate the development of a comprehensive array of services for children and families. And these grants were usually four years or six years long. And I was teasing with Julie because, oh, Lord have mercy, I used to review these grants. And uh, so very, very familiar with them. But you may not be. But I, I think it's one of the better efforts to come out of federal government. Still going on. It's a little different from what it used to be, but isn't everything. But that's for another show. But anyway, so that's what the System of Care grant is. So I did that for years and years. I started, and that's when I started my consulting company with with Marcy. It was from I started having my own children. I didn't want to work twelve hours a day. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! So when you left as the head of the mental health center and started this practice, what was that visioning process like in terms of what was next? You know, it's interesting that you say that because I I'm actually not. I'm not really like a forward thinker in that way. When it comes to my own life, I kind of just take the path that's right in front of me. I, I don't want to say I'm not visionary because there is a vision in there. So at the time I was really thinking I, I had been working as a director of children's services for this really large organization. And I absolutely loved it. I loved it. We brought in a lot of revenue. We started a lot of new programs, increased our employees and served a lot of families. But it was a really exciting time in my life. And and I felt like if I continued on that path, it would, and I was pregnant, right, at the time. And so I thought, you know, as much as I want to continue to change the world for everybody else out there, I can't do both at the same time because I really was fully committed to um, my work life as opposed to my home life, you know, and it was fine when my husband and I were just the two of us, but bringing a child into the world, I just thought, well, this is actually the most important job right now. And so I took a step back. And um, committed to raising my family. And I have to say, frankly, I'm busier now than I was then. You know, because when you work the way we work, <laughs> it doesn't ever end, really. <laughs> so I am busier now. And even with COVID, we're busier now than we've ever been. I want to talk about why you think that is in a minute. But before we do that, 
when you and your partner got together, what were the elements that you said, okay, if this is going to work, it's got to, you know, look like this, whether it's philosophy or adhering to a set of values and principles that you ascribe to, what was it? So Marcy's a really amazing person and she was already doing this a little bit, you know, kind of dabbling. She had two children at home. And so one day I actually, I hired her to help me write a grant for a, I was a president of a community-based organization and we had to write this large grant. And I said, well, I can't do this and my full-time job. So we hired her to write a grant and we're sitting there and halfway through our session, when I was explaining the the grant, I looked at her and said, wait, what do you do? (laughs) 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 And she just explained what she did. And I was like, hmm, (laughs) I believe we have to talk. (laughs) So then we had a couple of secret lunches because (laughs) we couldn't tell anybody what was going on. And we decided that maybe we would start just small. And then, but once I had my son and, and I realized, yeah, no, really, I can't work full time. And then um, she and I started working together and she was a great role model and mentor in that because she had been doing it for a little while. So, I mean, our motto or what we were looking for, our our vision really was to, to change the world first and foremost, to have flexible hours when doing so (laughs) and and to to just expand our horizons and and learn new processes. Let me just make a note to our listeners. It's, it's real simple folks, change the world and have flexible hours. I mean, (laughs) that's all you need. Yeah. Just quick note after Julie and I agreed on the importance of changing the world, but still maintaining flexible work hours, we moved on to a discussion about self-care and the importance of self-care, especially for providers. Here's what she had to say about that. In this time of horrific racial injustice in a pandemic, especially in the mental health field, there's a lot of hunger about how can we help other people lift themselves up? How can we help other people improve their mental health? But I, I think I want to start with how do we lift ourselves up? Because I mean, we can't lift ourselves up and focus on our own mental health. We're going to be useless. We've been in lockdown since March, basically. Right. Lockdown. Right. Except for Florida. They're wide open in Florida. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. You're in Florida. Ouch. That's right. Ouch. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot you're in Florida. Uh, anyway, I preach this and promote this. Hang in there. We're going to get through this. Da, 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 da. But then you have this wave of like, oh, God, you know, this is really depressing. And, you know, on this theme of self-care, it sounds like that's an important part of what you do as well. Well, yeah, I mean, if I'm thinking about self-care, that was probably one of the first self-care decisions I made. It was, you know, I can work 12 hours a day and try to raise a family and do none of it well. or I can make a choice that's going to be the best for myself and for my, my family and, and step back a little bit, which is a difficult thing for people to do, especially women to do, I think, especially at that time in your life when really things are just starting to build, to, to opt to jump off. As our conversation continued, Julie pointed out something that I found really interesting. She said that in the midst of all this, in the midst of taking care of herself and trying to practice what she preaches about self-care, she was finding that she was busier than ever in the midst of this pandemic. 
And, you know, I've heard that from a number of people. It seems to be a feast or famine thing. Some people are just incredibly busy. So I asked her why why she thought that was, that it, that in the middle of the pandemic, uh, she was having all this business. And were there trends she was seeing, not only in terms of what's happening in communities, but how people are adapting to help others, also how people are helping themselves. I mean, what what's going on that you would find yourself so busy in the middle of a pandemic? Here's what she had to say. Well, I think as far as adapting to help others, and I, I joke about this word all the time, pivot. You know, it's just, it's almost annoying to me that it's said in every conversation that I have, but that's really what people have to do. If they're going to meet the need, then you have to kind of, same thing we do with clients is meet the client where they're at. We have to meet the you know, the need where it is. And so our, our needs have completely changed over the past four months. What is it? Yeah. So, I mean, we have to be able to, to be um, nimble and flexible. And our, my business is, Marcy and I are very nimble and flexible. So because we do so many different things and we work in so many different arenas with so many different levels uh, and we have such a, a vast knowledge and expertise, we're able to meet whatever need is present and pressing. So give me some examples. And, and if you have examples in the mental health space, I'd just be curious to know what are people, yeah, or organizations, sounds like, what are organizations asking you to help with? Uh, so I've done a little bit of work with how the stress that's happening in people's lives is impacting them on a personal level, right? So that's not something that I necessarily did before, but some support groups, focus groups with with leaders that are challenged with how do they make these kinds of decisions that are really impacting entire communities. We do a lot of training. And so all of our training has gone virtual. And we've had to make those big changes to our curriculum and to um, creating platforms that people are comfortable using. A lot of the work that we do is very uh, personal. And so, Mm. you know, being on the computer is not quite so personal. So we're having to adapt what we do to make sure that whatever service we provide is equally as personal as it was before we were virtual. Uh, So that's a big shift. Children's mental health and wraparound. A huge part of what we do is implementing wraparound. One of the contracts we have is across the state of Florida. Uh, And so we've been able to adapt our training, our coaching, our technical assistance, all to be virtual and bring new providers on board. It seems as in the past, case managers, therapists, supervisors, they're in the field meeting with clients. And now people are not necessarily in the field meeting with clients, yet they still need to make those connections. So that's a challenge. Yeah. So Julie, the people that you used to train, the case managers, psychologists, social workers in person, and now not only is a training on Zoom or some other platform like that, but their interaction with their clients is so different. What? what? I want to get a sense of where where people's heads are at, you know, because suddenly the whole way I have learned to interact, I need to pivot, as you said. Well, so John Vandenberg wrote a great article. He's my mentor. He's a a, a very personal friend. He's one of the founders of the wraparound process. And he's been so instrumental across the United States in implementing wraparound. He and I actually just wrote an article about self-care. John's been retired for a couple of years. And through those years, he's had some struggles um, with physical health issues. Uh, And so he's really had to practice really good self-care. 
And through the months, through the years, he and I, we talk, he's working with me on my doctoral project. He's one of my external mentors. And, and we just have, we've shared a lot of, of those stories. And I, so when he and I were talking about how we could make a contribution to what's currently happening in the world, we landed on self-care because we both personally utilize self-care as a preventative measure. Uh, and because we feel that people that are on the ground, the, the, the workers that we're talking about, the people that are in the field, they need some support around what's happening because it is unprecedented times. And if you've never, as a behavioral health professional, you have always helped people that had challenges, but you never thought you'd be on the receiving end of it. You thought you had the resilience. And frankly, at this point, I don't know anybody who has enough resilience, right? We all need to dig deep and and every day find the things that we need to do to help us get through the day um, and to feel better and to thrive and to function. The article that we put together, it kind of just puts it into perspective for people to say it's okay to struggle. These are the signs of distress. You might have known them when you were talking to your clients, but now look internally and see, are you experiencing some of these signs? People who are used to be in your trainings when before the lockdown, there was a way they did their work if they're wraparound facilitators, right? Mm-hmm. In person, the training was probably geared towards more of that in-person interaction. Now we're in the midst of a pandemic. You've pivoted, as you call it, and have gone virtual with that and you know Zoom calls or whatever. What I want to get a sense of is, are you noticing differences in in providers' moods, affect, uh, sense of what works and what doesn't? Give us a feel for that. Sure. I mean, of course, there's lots of changes that are happening in the world, right? And so from, from the training perspective, I mean, just to speak about that quickly, is when we do trainings that need to be really interactive. We limit the number of people in, so we won't have more than 10 people. You're on Zoom, you're on camera the whole time. So it's you can't turn off camera and start doing other things because that's what we do right. when we're watching webinars, right? Um, it's very interactive uh, and we do lots of frequent breaks, go into breakout sessions and in the breakout rooms, you're going to do activities together, watch a video, come back and report what you did. So it's very interactive and, and it's actually more intense than being in person frankly, because you're just staring at, yeah, you're staring at the screen for the entire time. And in the beginning, I refused to turn the training into a virtual training because I felt like it was too interactive to do that way. And then one of the regions that I work with in the state of Florida, they just said, well, we're going to try it. And I said, well, I'm just going to sit in on your call <laughs> and watch how you do this training to see. So there. So there. <laughs> I was a fly on the wall on their call. And I watched and I said, you know what? This is actually doable. And so we made the shift um, and we're in the process of finalizing the curriculum to do it virtually. And I, I, I probably do three or four a month at this point, like three or four, three day training events Wow! on this. I'm actually working with the, with a system of care grant out in New Mexico, working with a tribal nation and they're trying to implement wraparound. And so from that perspective, we had to make shifts to make sure that the material is, is useful from the provider perspective, as far as if you're a person that's out there on the streets or out there working with families um, or even a supervisor within an organization, the shifts that we're seeing are that people are really having to manage their time. So in the past, they would be out in the field from nine to five. And now people are, are working more. So they really have to set good boundaries, which maybe they weren't so good at before because it was more like this is home and this is work and you can compartmentalize, but that has gone away. 
that difference between the two, as we're all working from home, the, the people that are working with, with clients are afraid that they're not going to engage over the over virtual platforms. And especially when you're working in behavioral health, engagement is really the most important aspect of sure. what you do. So if you can't properly engage, then that's a challenge. So some of them have taken to, well, that first visit will be outside social distancing, wearing masks. At least we, we know each other once. And then we can go onto the virtual platform and be fine. And so that's one technique that I see people using a lot that seems to work really well. The people that seem to be doing the best with it are people that don't have a lot of obligations at home. If you're home with young children that don't understand you know, what's, why you can't talk to them at that moment or why you can't play with them at that moment, that's difficult. And, and much of the workforce in any starting position tends to be younger. What do you tell them or how, how do you help them? You know what I tell them? And even in the trainings, when we take a break in the training, the break is, okay, go get your pets, go get your children. It's, it's bring your kids to work day right now. Go get them. Like just incorporate them into the process uh, because it just makes it so much easier than constantly pushing them away when your children are home. And you know what? It doesn't matter. We're all dealing with each other's situations right. <laughs> and we have to just be open and flexible and supportive. And so if that means that you have young children that are going to be sitting right next to you and you might go, you know, on mute and quickly do something for them and then come back, that's okay. Uh, and you shouldn't feel bad about it. That's beautiful. Are you doing any kind of, you know, socially distance in-person work or is it all virtual? I have been all virtual since March. I have a request to do a training in Northern Florida the end of July that's supposed to be in person. And we've really taken the attitude of, okay, I'm going to plan that it'll be in person. I'm not flying. So I would, I would drive there. Um, but, and we'll see how, what it looks like as it gets closer. I mean, as you know, Florida's just exploding. So we're going to see what happens. And have you had to change your curriculum that you do like for the wraparound uh, training? And, and if so, how do you change something that's, that's such an in-person interactive approach to be zoomifiable or whatever. <laughs> in the beginning, like I said, I did. I was. I, I said no, that's not possible. But then I did a bunch of research about evidence-based practices with training. I talked with a couple experts that have been doing it for a while, and then we looked at what we were doing and how we could change it. And wraparound is just one of the trainings that we do. All of the trainings that we do. Marcy and I have a leadership academy that normally meets for one full day for a nine-month period like one full day a month for a nine month period. And we've changed that to virtual. I'm curious about the evidence-based research part of it. So what does the research say? What it talks about is that you can't lecture for more than 20 minutes at a time. And if you do, if you're going to provide that kind of a training, then you need to give short breaks. So in everything that we do, we don't lecture for more than 20 minutes at a time. When we give a break, it's a five minute break. It's usually an activity-based break. So go outside, um, and sit in the sun, go get grab a cup of coffee, bring back your favorite coffee mug and show it on film or on camera. So we try to make them very interactive and, and fun. Definitely, you need to add humor, add as many visuals as possible. So if there's an opportunity to put a video on, put a video on. If there's opportunity to do a breakout session or polls, a lot of the platforms have the opportunity for polls. You can do that. And the breakout sessions are really great. Because what that feels like is you're in your own little room with the other three people and you can just have a conversation and then you pop back into the main area afterwards. 
So that's like a real, so it's just basically very interactive. That's what we strive to do is make everything very interactive. That's awesome. You've talked a lot about the kind of work that your organization is doing with community leaders and, and practitioners in this time of pandemic. But, you know, we not only have a pandemic, we have probably the most fundamental discussion going on right now about racial inequality and racial justice. How is the Ronick Radlauer Group addressing that, especially when you're working in communities that, that are relatively diverse? And, you know, it's one thing to talk about wraparound or to talk about leadership in uh, a pandemic, but I, I just don't see how you can do that without talking about race. And so I'm just curious how you're addressing that. That's a really important point. I mean, we spend a lot of our time working in underprivileged, underserved communities. We spend a lot of time addressing issues of disparity. And I think for helping professionals, we have to recognize that many of the people that they are helping are experiencing a, a lot of the trauma that we've all been experiencing through COVID as well as through what's happening now with racism. We have to help the helpers learn to properly address this with their clients, recognizing that trauma is really in the eyes of the beholder. And so what I experience as trauma, you might experience something totally different. It's not traumatic. And so as a helper, it's not your responsibility to judge. It's your responsibility to be there, to support, to listen, to help somebody get through whatever trauma they're experiencing. And then the whole self-care piece of what we're talking about today is really important because there's research around it. There's research around that when people are exposed to trauma, it impacts their body, it impacts their limbic system. And so some of these health self-care techniques that we talk about is a way to make sure that you don't allow these toxins to build up in your limbic system. You are able to do things like stretch properly, um, do twisting activities and twisting exercises to release those toxins um, so that you don't continue to um, have stress on an ongoing basis. You can almost prevent a stressful event by knowing this, I know it's going to be a difficult day. I have a really important court hearing or I have a really important client to see. And so what kind of stretching activities can I do in advance to take care of myself prior to, as well as after the day is done and whatever stressful family you helped or whatever stressful crisis you were working with in a community, then you can also take care of yourself post the stressful day. So uh, the self-care techniques that we talk about are for the helping professional, but then also then the helping professional can pass that information on to the clients that they're working with. Because we, ex we expect that people are going to be exposed to trauma with everything that's going on in the world. And we have to figure out how to get ahead of it so that we can support people. Is the discussion of the Black Lives Matter movement, does it come up in the meetings that you have? Because it is kind of the elephant in the room right now. You can talk a lot about a lot of great ideas, but if you're not addressing structural racism, which people are talking about outside of your Zoom call all the time, it, it just right. seems like it'd be a real disconnect. So I'm just curious how you deal with that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It comes up in every meeting, in every conversation that we're having. Again, both with COVID as well as with Black Lives Matter and the, the disproportionate treatment that people have received. Many of the people that we work with are Black and Brown. And many of the professionals in the field are Black and Brown. And so as a Black and Brown helping professional, you need to learn to truly take care of yourself because while the pandemic is disproportionately affecting you, also in the process of trying to seek social justice for the systemic racism and police brutality and all that's been happening in the world, 
And so it's decimated the communities in which these people live and work and thrive. And so we can't ignore what's happening for somebody as a professional in their personal lives and then expect them to have the same professional experience every day. I'm, I'm reading this great book. Uh, it's called White Fragility. It's it's by Robin DiAngelo. And I don't know if you've read yes. it. And Oh, good. So then you probably know what my question is. So I'm a white guy. You're white. What do you say to your white colleagues about, I mean, you're in this position where people pay you to come in and provide leadership guidance and to help them get to the next level. And in this time, not only a pandemic, but to this national important conversation on racial justice, what is your advice to your fellow white colleagues about what they need to be doing? Yeah, well, I mean, that's honestly, I'm learning every day. And I think we all have to take that attitude is that we're learning every day. For a lot of people, this has been going on for hundreds of years. And I think for many people, this is something that they're they're just now saying, well, I didn't realize this was such a big issue, which is shocking that people are not aware. And also, we have to recognize that everybody has their own experiences in life. Even if you just think about COVID, some people are experiencing COVID as they're staying home, as I am, and wearing masks when they're in public. And other people are walking around like it's just a, a regular Tuesday. And so we all have our own experiences. Well, it's the same thing with everything that we're dealing with, with racial injustice is some people have been downtrodden by this for a very, very long time. And I've been fighting this fight for a long time. And other people are just now learning. I think that we shouldn't be debating whether racism is, exists at this point. I, at this point, we've met the burden of proof, right? So it's happening. It's been happening for a long time. And we all have, just have to take time to listen, to learn to figure out how we can support each other, both white people as well as black and brown people. Many of the people that I come into contact with say they're just so frustrated because they don't know what to do. What are they supposed to do first? And they want to help, but they don't know how to help. And the answer to that is just listen and figure out the way that you can provide support. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm learning every day. I have teachers that I've been friends with for a long time, but that are now teaching me what I need to do and how I need to speak out part of this podcast. It was important to me to make sure that we talk about this message too, because we have to use our platform whenever we have the opportunity. I personally, you know, I tend to err on the side of science. I tend to err on the side of evidence. I think there's plenty of evidence of historical wrongdoing. I don't think we should be debating whether or not this is, is, if, is if this is happening. I think it's, it is occurring and we need to figure out how we can slowly, methodically work with our black and brown friends to figure out what's the next thing we can do to help. And, you know, and there's, I, I've listened to several podcasts about being an ally. I, I think that's a process to becoming an ally. And so I think we just have to all strive to do the best we can to help the people that we know need help and support and to educate others. With everything that's happened with Black Lives Matter and with the protests and with police brutality, and we've been able to kind of, it's turn, it's become a tipping point where now we're having these conversations. We're talking about the changes that can be made quickly, right? Changes that we never thought could be made. Now people are talking about defunding police, which is very different than what it sounds like, right? But taking those dollars that might've been used for police and, and reallocating it in communities where we can have more crisis support and behavioral health counselors treating people with mental health conditions rather than having them being arrested and put in jail. And so we very quickly 
because of this, these times that we're in, we've very quickly been able to make changes that people have been trying to make for years and years and years. And so I think that that's, again, another way to use this opportunity that we're in to seize the moment and to try to make changes for good. Excellent. Excellent. You have this positive approach and uh, kind of, we, we can do this. And here we are in difficult times and we can do this. But what are three things you would encourage people to do to help them keep marching forward? I think, well, so when it comes to self-care, it's really just about being kind to yourself. I think we have to recognize that in the times that we're in, it is difficult. And there might be opportunities for us to flip the script. So something that we thought was really challenging, we can turn that into a positive. So like, for example, if you take like the educational system, right? I, w- I live in a state where there's statewide mandatory testing every year. We went, you know, virtual mid-March and our mandatory testing was supposed to be in April. The very first thing the educational system did in the state of Florida was say there will be no testing this year. That's been, we've been wanting that to happen for years, right? Yeah. So this opportunity of COVID completely switched that around. And then SAT and ACT followed. And now colleges might not even be requiring those testings. So yeah. you have to look at what's happening in, in the universe to say, well, there were changes that needed to be made. And this was just the impetus to help that happen. And that framework, that perspective that you can have on life, that you can turn something that is a challenge into a positive is something that we should really try to train our brain to do. I mean, that's one thing that I think, because we, we feel like we're out of control in every aspect right. of what's happening, but you can control the way you respond to things and the way you react to things. Right. So the same thing in the mental health field, you know, mental health, we've been struggling with um, stigma for years and people who are challenged with mental health conditions don't want to talk about it. Well, now all of a sudden, I mean, having mental health symptoms, whether it's depression, anxiety, that's almost like the expectation, not the exception. Right. So we are now having these conversations about mental health as though everybody's experiencing some level of it, which is totally you know, decrease the stigma that we've been fighting for years and years. So I think that's one thing that I think is really important is being able to just kind of flip that script. I think the other thing when it comes to self-care is being compassionate to yourself, recognizing what's happening um, around you and how your response to what's happening around you. There's a really good TED talk um, by Dolly Chogue. She's a, a NYU professor and she talks about being a goodish person. As opposed a goodish. To a goodish. A goodish. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's it's really. I mean, it's about don't strive for perfection and then be disappointed when you don't achieve it. Do the best that you can. Be proud of what you've done. Figure out what you need to do better. We're going to make mistakes. It's okay that we make mistakes. That's just part of the process. We we'll learn from those and move on. Uh, and so, if you can just take a step back um, and keep things in perspective, that's really helpful. Obviously, meditation is something that people advocate for a lot. And so there's research about how meditation improves your mental health functioning, how it decreases your stress. Find something that works for you. You don't have to be a yogi <laughs> to practice meditation. I mean, there's just regular breathing activities where it's like if you just breathe in for three seconds and breathe out for five seconds and breathe in for three seconds and breathe out. If you do five consecutive times, you'll feel your heart rate decrease. Finding those techniques that work for you, everybody has to find their own way and what works for them. If you're a helping professional, you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah. So if you're not taking care of yourself, then you can't help other people. And that's your mission in life or you wouldn't be working in this field. So it's almost your responsibility 
as a professional to take care of yourself. Okay, coach. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, coach. Good job. All right, last question. Last question. It's our Zoom question. If you could have a Zoom call with anybody, anybody, living or dead, who would it be and why? And what would you ask them? If I could have a Zoom call. Hmm, that's a good one. That's a good question. I would say if I was going to have a Zoom call with anybody, I think I would have a call with my tribe. It would be the people that are there for me, the people that I love and who love me, that support me, my friends from high school and college that I've been doing Zoom calls with. That's who I would want to spend time with. What would you ask them? I would ask them, how are they doing today? Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, we know what you're doing after this call. <laughs> Going back to work. <laughs> no, you're calling your tribe. Oh, my tribe. Yeah. Julie, thank you so much. This was a delightful conversation. How can people learn more about you and what you do? Okay. So you can go to the Ronick Radlauer Group website, um, www.ronickradlauer.com. Um, you can go to the uh, to our website and learn about all the different activities and, and work that we do. And we've been working with a lot of organizations around self-care. So we're happy to do that. Excellent. Thank you, Julie. It was a delight talking Thank with you. you All right. Oh, my. Now, that was an excellent interview. Much appreciation to Julie Radlauer for joining us on The Optimistic Advocate. All right, folks. That's the show. Uh, be sure to check the show notes if you want to learn more about what you heard today. Remember to hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time. Signing out.